Good morning, Woodland Hills. I want to reiterate this uh, piece about the conference. Um, Renew is, is a ministry that I have, re with, uh, re K-N-E-W, to rethink everything you thought you knew. And uh, this conference will, is based on the crucifixion of the warrior God and uh, the book Cross Vision, which will be coming out in August, which is the popularized version of that. But it's going to go beyond that. Uh, Rachel Held Evans will be, be part of this conference, um, and Bruxy and Dennis Edwards and uh, Jared uh, uh, Swiger, he's part of Globally Immersed, and a number of, of other fo folks. So I encourage you to come and be part of that. Uh, it's going to be great. Powerful worship time, uh, a lot of joy. But I have to, I, I, before I get into my message, I want to share something that is kind of heavy, but it has to be addressed. I want to talk about uh, just a word about the Flando Castile verdict. Um, and here's the thing, whenever I address issues of race, almost always, I, I'll get some pushback, sometimes from people in the congregation, a lot of times from parishioners, um, and they'll say things like, uh, you know, the vast majority of policemen are really fair and they strive to be, you know, go beyond racial categories, and, and our justice system, while maybe not perfect, is, is the best thing going. And our country, while maybe not perfect, is the best country going. And, and I, I, I want to affirm all of that. Okay, so what I, what I want to share here is not about that. I affirm that. Um, but I just ask people to put down their defenses and, and just listen to what I want to have to say here. By the way, I, what, I, what I do when there's something like this that happens, uh, at least a lot of times, I'll, and I did this time, I'll call up Dennis Edwards or Nicole Bullock or... Uh, Delon Smith, who leads worship here, or sometimes other friends, African-American friends, and I just ask, will you guide me on, on what would be helpful? What would, what would, how can I serve you uh, in a time like this? And so this, what I'm sharing here kind of comes out of those conversations. But you see, Jesus, the way he transforms the world and the way he, he heals us is, is by being incarnational. Philippians 2, the Son of God, he didn't grasp after or cling to his advantages, his privileges, but he rather set them aside in order to enter into total solidarity with us and our wounds and our needs and taking them on, on, on himself. That's what the cross is ultimately all about. And we're told in the New Testament to do the same thing, to love like he loves. And love is incarnational. Uh, we're to love others as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Ephesians 5. And so the call of kingdom people is this. Whatever advantages you have, to be willing to suspend those and enter into solidarity with those who don't have those advantages. And to try to see the world from their perspective, understand the world from their perspective, and, and, and enter into their experience. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. And right now, folks, there's a lot of, African, a lot of folks in the African-American community and outside the African-American community that are weeping right now. And, and we that don't have to weep with that need to be willing to enter incarnationally into that weeping. And maybe it's, it's easier for some to do than others. I've got four black grandkids, and two of them are black grandsons. And it doesn't take any work on my behalf at all to imagine them as Philando Castile. And if, if what happened to Flando Castillo happened to my grandsons, I would be in the same situation that Flando's mother was in on Friday. Uh, that, that's incarnational. Um, and people will say, well, look, we don't have all the facts the jury did. 
Uh, or, or, you know, we have to just trust the, the justice system. Democracy only works if you trust the justice system. But see, that is so easy, all too easy for white folks like me to say because the system usually works for us. It's easy for us to say because we haven't been screwed over by the system for four centuries. And so we that have the benefit of, of, of having the system benefit us need to be willing to put that aside and enter into the perspective of those who don't benefit from the system have often been mistreated by the system. The truth is, the truth is that, that, that the system has always treated non-whites differently than it treats whites. And white followers of Jesus need to incarnate into that reality. The truth is that the system was set up by whites for the sake of whites, often at the expense of non-whites. The truth is that white Europeans didn't discover America. We came over here and we stole it, and we set up a system that advantages us against others. And it's not about feeling bad about what happened in the past. I, 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 we can't go back there. But it, we've got to be aware. It's kingdom people who are called to manifest one new humanity that tears down the walls like we just sang about. As folks who are committed to doing that, we've got to be aware of how the past continues on in the present and how the structures are still the same, how the system has been rigged from the start and, and, and become aware of that to, in order to deconstruct that. Jim Crow is still alive and well. Uh, yeah, maybe it's a little more subtle than it used to be, but, but, but and see, a lot of folks have known that for a long time since then now with the proliferation of iPhones and cameras, videos, we're catching a lot more of it. We're, we're, we're not a, a people who are called to solve all the problems of society and fix the world, but we are called to manifest the kingdom. And that means we are called to live incarnationally and to laugh, rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and to enter into the experiences of others and, and, and to, to cry together and to moan together and together to long for, hope for, and work towards a time when the kingdom will come, praise God, when finally justice will be served, hallelujah, and we won't have these walls anymore, won't have the division, won't have the hatred, won't have the hostility, won't have any of that kind of injustice. God's love will define every square inch of the cosmos, and God's justice, therefore, will define every square inch of the cosmos, because His justice is love, and His love is justice. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, ah, there's that, just that. What else we can do is say, acknowledge it and surrender that over to God and commit to living differently. Cultivate relationships that cross ethnic lines so that your perspective is broadened and enriched and we're manifesting the one new humanity. Amen. Amen. All right, okay. So we're in this series on movies. God works by all means possible and sometimes even Hollywood gets used uh, once in a while. And so, uh, I, I, last week, Sandra did a great job talking about Beauty and the Beast. She's an excellent, she's just a crackerjack preacher. Appreciate her. This morning, I want to talk about, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, it is the movie that I think most brilliantly captures, my understanding at least, of the way that God runs the world, his providence, and how it interacts with, 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 with people. Uh, it's called the, the Adjustment Bureau. How many have seen the Adjustment Bureau? Okay, the rest of you need to see it. <laughs> it's, really, it's really a good show. It's really a good show. Um, okay, so, so it, it, here's the thing. So we're going to be talking about providence and things like that. This is going to be a thinker's message, so get ready to think, all right? Uh, we're going to watch a scene from this movie, and I need to set up this clip. The Adjustment Bureau is a bureau that is called to adjust things when the plan of the chairman is going off track, or to keep the plan from going off track. Uh, these, the Adjustment Bureau agents are supernatural agents, kind of like think of them as angels, and the chairman is God, and God has a plan. 
But see, the plan is a plan. It's not a script. And human beings are free in this movie. And, and so once in a while, these agents have to come down and tweak things to keep the system running on, according to plan. And they got supernatural power that, that they're able to use to do that. So the, David Norris and Elise Seller are in love with each other. David Norris is played by Matt Damon. And Elise Seller is played by Emily Blunt. And they're in love. Trouble is, that's not part of the plan. And so these agents are constantly trying to keep them apart. But they keep on finding a way to come together again. This is really weird. So in the scene that we're going to watch... Um, the, David Norris is trying to get to, to Cedar Lake Company uh, where, where there's a dance recital going, that's going to go on and, and it's because Elise is a ballet dancer and he wants to watch her dance. Now the Adjustment Bureau agents know that if he sees her dance, well he's going to so fall, so, fall so madly in love with her that they'll never be able to separate him. And so they're trying to prevent him from, from, from seeing her. And they're using all sorts of supernatural stuff to do that. Another thing you need to know about this clip is this. These agents have this notebook that is really an, an omniscient notebook. It's the mind of God notebook. All right? And so uh, uh, it, it tracks every decision that a, a person or that an agent or that God makes causes ripple effects. And because people are free, it doesn't force them to do anything, but it, it changes probabilities. And this notebook, this brilliant notebook, it's the most brilliant part of the, the whole show, I think, is, is, is capturing how probabilities are changing as, as people are making decisions. And the job of these agents is, is to make sure that these probabilities don't get out of control, these ripple effects don't get out of control, because that could derail the plan. So what Matt Damon, David Norris, is trying to do is he's acting in improbable ways, outlandish ways, unexpected ways, to cause massive ripple effects that the agents can't control. This is brilliant, because he wants to get to Elise. Uh, then one, one final thing you got to know is this. The agents all have hats, and the hats allow them to go through ordinary doors and instantly go long distances. It's like a dimensional door. Uh, and, and so, but they have to have hats on, otherwise the doors don't open the right way. So let's watch the clip. Here we go. Adjustment Bureau. <laughs> I tell you, it's a good show. I love it. I love it. And see, if it wasn't for his hat flying off there, uh, they, they, they might have been able to, to intercept this. But uh, that, little, that little thing, see, everything has a ripple effect. Uh, and uh, that was the ultimate reason how these people could. Now, the story doesn't end there. It goes on, but I'm not going to spoil it because I know you all want to go home and, and see that tonight. So there you go. Um, so our decisions in, in the model, this model of providence, our decisions are like, like pebbles dropped in a pond, and they cause ripple effects, and those ripple effects interact with the ripple effects of other decisions that were made, and those interact with other decisions, and so on and so on. And everything in this world is uh, uh, influenced by, if not caused by, the, the, the intersection of those ripples, ripples interfering with ripples, decisions interacting with other decisions. Um, and that makes for a very, very kind of complex world. God's got a plan, but he doesn't micro-control. It means that we, we have genuine say-so in what comes to pass here. Um, so you can think of it like this. Now, if you've never heard this model before, it's probably a little weird to you. Because most Christians are taught that God's got a plan, and that plan isn't a plan of what God wants to happen. It's a script of what's going to happen. Because most Christians are taught that God always gets what he wants. And so everything that happens is a result of God's plan. Uh, it, it's, it's what I sometimes call the blueprint worldview because it, it, it's saying that everything that happens in, this his, in history is a working out of the God's blueprint of what's supposed to happen. And so people say things like, 
you know, God's got a reason for everything. God's still on the throne. He's still in control and things like that. I talked about that two weeks ago. Uh, you can think about it this way. Let's put up this, this, this chart. So here is, now I, see, I got to follow it up here so I can, where's, where's that red thing? I, I guess I, I did it between services and it worked. And I, I got to follow it up there so I can, I want to get it right there. Oh, can you see the red? All right. So, uh, so in, in the blueprint view, when, where you're born or when you're born and, and, and when you're going to die, it's all part of a blueprint. It's planned ahead of time. And everything that happens to you is planned ahead of time. So there's only one way that things can go. Now, here's a different model. This is the kind of model that the Adjustment Bureau movie was advocating. I, I could call it a choose-your-own-adventure model. Have you ever, ever read a choose-your-own-adventure book where you know, the, the author uh, you know, kind of lays out all the possibilities, but you as a reader get to choose how the, the, the story should go? So if you think Sally should buy the dog, then you go to page 9. If you think she should buy the cat, you go to page 10. And it's like that. So, so you come to a point of decisions here. Oh, i got to go like this again to follow it up. Yeah, where is it? There it is. So you come to a decision point right there. Uh, and, and you get to decide whether you're going to go left or right. Go this way or that way. You go this way, and it closes down some possibilities, but it opens up others. You come to another point of decision. You can go this way or that way. And so you go this way, and that closes down some possibilities, but it opens up others. And then you come to another point. You can go this way, and then you can go down this way. And you see how this works? So there's always brand, it's, it is branching out possibilities. And as time goes on, just like those notebooks indicated, there's, there's, uh, you're causing ripple effects that affect other people's uh, possibilities and things like that. Now, one advantage of this choose-your-own-adventure model is that you don't have to believe that all the nasty stuff in life is part of God's plan, which you do have to believe in the blueprint worldview. That, that the, the tragedy that happened, the kid that got kidnapped, the cancer that you got, the Holocaust, all of it is part of the divine plan. It's all for the better. And that creates what's called the problem of evil. And again, I talked about that two, two weeks ago, uh, this deterministic picture of God. In the choose-your-own-adventure model, all that's wrong with the world is a result of the decisions that people and or angels make and the ripple effects that those cause. So you don't have to believe that God is the one that, that's, that's uh, planning all the nasty stuff. But even though it has that advantage, it also makes some people nervous because they think that if God's facing a future of possibilities, well, then he, he might be just as nervous about the future as these Adjustment Bureau agents were. You know, how can he guarantee that things are going to stay on plan? How can he guarantee that, that uh, things aren't going to get derailed? How can he promise they can bring good out of evil? Maybe things could catch him by surprise. He didn't see that coming. Uh, how can he even be guaranteed to, to win in the end? And so this makes people kind of nervous. Now, whether you hold this view or not, I, I want you to see this. If it, if, if it makes you nervous, because if, like, if, if it, not, not everything's pre-scripted. And for some people, that just gives them, gives them anxiety. If that makes you nervous, it's because, now you don't know this, that you're doing this, but it's because you're not trusting that God is really, really smart. And see, here's, here's, here's what happens. Uh, we are a lot more confident if we have one thing to anticipate and prepare for than if we have 10 things to anticipate and prepare for. And the reason that we are more confident with one thing than we are with 10 possibilities is because we have a limited intelligence. And so if I have 10 things that I have to prepare for uh, in case they happen, I, have to, I can only give one-tenth of my intelligence on each one of those possibilities. I have to spread my intelligence thin to cover those possibilities. Whereas if I only have one thing to anticipate, all my attention is on it. But see, if God has unlimited intelligence, and he does, if he has infinite intelligence, then he doesn't have to spread his intelligence thin to cover 10 possibilities. You can't divide up infinity. If God has unlimited intelligence, then it's as though all of his attention is on this possibility, but it's also all on this possibility, and also all on this possibility, and so for all ten possibilities. 
He anticipates all 10 as effectively as if he only had one to anticipate. And, and, and that holds true if there's 10 possibilities or 10 trillion possibilities or 10 trillion to the trillionth power possibilities or just go on and on and on. So God can see the future of all that is possible, all those branching out things, and he anticipates every one of those possible storylines as though it had to happen. As though there's only one storyline he had to look at. If you're playing God in chess, you're going to lose. Because you may be a good chess player, but you can't, you can't fathom all possibilities. Uh, but God can. So whatever move you make, and you're free to make any move you want, but whatever move you make, God's been looking at that move, the possibility of that move from the beginning of the game, and he's got a plan in place on how to turn to his advantage and checkmate you. Whatever you do, it's only going to further his purpose of checkmating you. Because he's been looking at that from the, from, the, from the beginning of the game. And so whatever happens to me, it, it, it doesn't mean that God planned it. No, it maybe it's against God's plan, but he's got a plan for it. In, in, in this view, not everything happens for a purpose, but everything happens with a purpose. Because God brings a purpose to it. And while the thing may be bad, God's purpose is always really, really good. So don't be nervous whether you accept this or not. You don't lose anything in terms of uh, God's providence or control by embracing this view. Now, I personally think that this view is really supported in Scripture. Most people don't see this because we all tend to read the Bible through a particular grid of what we think we already know. And, and most folks are taught some version of the blueprint view. So they'll notice things that agree with that, but they won't notice all the stuff that disagrees with it. And there's a lot of stuff that disagrees with it, in my humble opinion. Now, I can only give a few examples of this, but if you want to go deeper in it, I have a book out there called God of the Possible. And it flushes out the biblical case for this, all right? But uh, uh, let's look at a, a few examples. First one comes from Moses when he's talking to God in the burning bush. And uh, at, at one point, the Lord says to him, uh, Moses, I want you to go, go down to Israel, go down to Egypt, and tell the elders of, of the, the Israelites that Yahweh has sent you, and, that, uh, uh, and, and they will believe you and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, two verses later, in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says this. What if you're not right about that? But suppose they don't believe me or listen to me. They'd rather say, the Lord didn't appear to you. You're lying. What if they say that? Now, that's interesting because God just said, they will believe you. Moses says, what if they don't? So apparently Moses doesn't think just because God said it, it means it's, it's written in stone. So I always tell people, if I'm a heretic, I'm in good company, all right? Uh, <laughs> Moses is on, on my side. And the, the Lord doesn't say, hey, dude, don't you know, I got a crystal ball. I know, how, you know exactly how things are going to play out here. He doesn't say that. Uh, he rather says this, Moses, uh, take your stick and throw it on the ground. It will turn into a snake. Pick it up again, it will be a stick. Put your hand in your coat, pull it out, and it will be leprous. But put it back in, pull it out, and it will be whole. Then he says this in verse 8. He goes, if they do not believe you or heed the first sign, they might believe, but they might not. They may believe the second sign. But if they don't believe even these two signs or heed you, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, it will turn into blood, and they'll be freaked out and believe you. So what's going on here is this. He's saying, okay, Moses, you got a point. Uh, they may not believe at first. They're right. Uh, you know, people are free. They can make choices. I don't control things. I've got a big plan here. The plan involves the children of Israel getting out of Egypt. That's going to happen. But it may take a miracle or two. But they, they may not believe the first miracle, but perhaps it'll be the second. But they might not believe the second, perhaps it'll be the third. And they don't believe the third. The, the, I, got, I got 13 other tricks I can pull. And one way or another, Moses, trust me, I can get them out of Egypt. But... How many miracles will it take? That's up for grabs. So there's a plan, but there's room to maneuver in the plan because people are free. 
Another example is in Hosea. Uh, you know, the whole book of Hosea is announcing a judgment, a nasty judgment coming on the Israelites because they've been disobedient. So God says he's going to hide his face. He's going to withdraw. This is how God always judges. He was, he's going to withdraw and allow the Assyrians, those nasty Assyrians, to do what they already want to do. They are people who are bent on violence, he says. And so they're, they're, they're going to come and ransack Jerusalem, and, and, and it's going to be nasty. And he, the whole book of Hosea is, or almost the whole book is announcing this judgment. It's really nasty. But in the middle of it, in chapter 9, verse 6, he says this. Even if they, the children of Israel, escape destruction, Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them. Memphis is just a major city in Egypt. This is interesting. So you're saying that it's not a foregone conclusion that Assyria is going to do this. Uh, it just looks like right now they're going to do this. But if they don't, you have a contingency plan, a backup plan. Israel's going to come under judgment. Now, I think it's going to be Assyria, but people are free. They might make other decisions. But even if, even if they escape destruction at the hands of Assyrians, those Egyptians are waiting in the wings, and they want to carry out then the, 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 the dirty work. Here God is talking in terms of ifs and maybes, things like that. Here's another example. Uh, Exodus 13 says that the Lord, when Pharaoh let the people go, he didn't lead the children of Israel uh, by, uh, along the way of the Philistines, even though that was the shortest route. Because God thought if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. I just think this is really interesting. If they face war, they might not face war. The Philistines might chicken out and not want to do this, but they might attack them. And if they do attack, the children of Israel might want to go back to Egypt. They may not want to do that, but they also may. And here God's thinking in terms of ifs and maybes, which so far as I can see only makes sense if possibilities are part of the furniture of the reality that God omnisciently knows. Uh, when the, the, the possibilities are real, and God knows everything exactly as it is, and so he knows possibilities, possibilities. So he thinks in terms of ifs and maybes. All right? One final one is this, that because God's dealing with free agents, his plans have to be flexible. Uh, there's flexibility. They're, they're not all ironclad. In fact, I don't think most of them are. There, there's, there's some flexibility there. Um, so one example is, is this in Jeremiah 18. Uh, God has announced that judgment's coming on Israel once again because of their disobedience. And the Israelites are going, we're toast, we're done, we're, we're cooked, because they don't think they can alter it. And Yahweh goes, don't think like that. No, just because I said it's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. And then he takes Jeremiah to this potter's uh, house. Well, he's got a pottery wheel and stuff. And the potter is forming this kind of vessel. He has a plan. But the clay is not cooperating. And so the, the, the potter improvises and makes a different kind of vessel that's appropriate for the kind of clay that he's working with. Then the Lord says this uh, in, in, in chapter 18. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord, just like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I'm going to pluck, uh, pluck up, break, uh, break down, and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. On the other hand, next, next slide. At another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I'll change my mind about the good that I had intended to do. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, look, I am the potter. I'm shaping evil against you. The Hebrew word there is ra. It can be translated as calamity. I'm, I'm shaping a calamity against you because the Assyrians are going to come in there and do all that. I'm devising a plan against you. But turn now all of you from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. 
So just note this. The Lord says at any time, at any time. So this covers everything the Lord says about nations. At any time, I, I, I may declare blessing, but if that nation turns evil, then it'll, I'll change my mind and bring judgment. But if I, I say I'm going to bring judgment and the nation turns, uh, then I'll bring blessing instead. And what the Lord is saying here is like, just because I say it's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. In fact, the reason I'm telling you that it's going to happen is so that it won't happen. <laughs> because I'm telling you this so that you'll change so I won't have to do this. All right? There's flexibility here. There's flexibility. Uh, what, we, what we do has ripple effects even for God. Uh, it, it, it can change the course of things, praise God. Uh, and, and by the way, this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 9, where he uses this potter clay analogy. Some people think that, you know, he's saying that God just unilaterally makes out of one lump of clay these good guys and blesses them, and then he makes bad guys and punishes them for being the way God made them to be, which is kind of psychotic if you ask me. But the point is rather the opposite of this. It's about God's flexibility. He's a potter. We are the clay. And so he will fashion us according to the kind of clay that we are, and our job is to make ourselves pliable in God's hands. So this model of providence, folks, has massive implications for a lot of things. It, massive implications for our picture of God, our understanding of, 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 of you know, is, is evil part of the plan and things like that. It has massive implications for how we see ourselves. I talked about this two weeks ago, that we really are decision makers who have significance and contribute to the way things go. We're not to be waiting around for the future to happen. We help create the future. And, 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 and so we're to be partnering with, with God with that. But what I want to do in the last 15 minutes of this message is to focus in on this one other implication. And that is that this model of providence, this adjustment bureau model of providence, this choose your own adventure model of providence, it allows us to understand why we can't understand why. Which is the title of this message, by the way, Why We Can't Understand Why. And that's a very important thing to understand because we're always asking why, aren't we? Why? Why did my mom die when I was two? Uh, why does my sister have cancer? Why did this person have this kind of genetic makeup? Why has this person got these certain mental issues? Why did I miscarry this child? Uh, why did my child get hit by the car? Why, 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 why? And see... Most Christians will have some version of an answer like, well, it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. It, it's, you know, God knows what he's doing. He's still on his throne, da, 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 da. Uh, which can really tick some people off. If you're the one that has been suffering the nightmare, and you're saying, this was part of the plan. The Holocaust was part of the plan. No, thank you. And then there's others who will say, no, no, God's always good. He doesn't plan evil. But uh, you must have lacked faith or you have some sin in your life. So we end up either blaming God or blaming the victim. Both are which, which are really bad alternatives. And what's tragic is we've got a whole book of the Bible that is the central point of which is to say that those are not the two, only two alternatives. And yet, for most people, those are the only two alternatives. And throughout the book of Job, you know, uh, Job's going through his suffering and, and, and both Job and the friends assume that God's doing all this. And so Job says, this is unjust because I'm not a worse sinner than you guys. And Job's friends are saying, no, God is just, so there, you must be a worse sinner than we are. And when God shows up, he doesn't say one or the other's right. He says, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. And then he starts talking about the complexity of creation. And then he starts talking about these cosmic beasts, Leviathan and Behemoth, who were, which were ancient ways of, of thinking about Satan and the principalities and powers. Which is really interesting. God doesn't say, I, I can do whatever I want. You can't question me. He never says that. He says, what do you guys know about what's going on here? Do you have any idea of what's going on in creation and, and about the forces of evil that I have to contend with? Because see, in this, in this view, of you, this choose your own adventure view, asking why is the wrong question because it's unanswerable. 
in any kind of definitive way, unless God gives you a word of knowledge or something. It's, it's unanswerable, not because God is so mysterious, but because the world is so unfathomable. Everything is, is, it reflects the influence of decisions made that cause ripple effects that go back to the beginning of time. And we can't possibly know all of that. Which brings me to chaos theory. Some of you guys know what chaos theory is? It's a really cool uh, branch of science. Um, here's the thing. In 1962, there's a guy named Ed Lorenz, MIT professor, real smart guy, working on one of the first computers. Uh, it's, it it was, took up a whole room, but probably had about one one-hundredth of the power of your iPhone. That's how things have improved. But he's using this massive computer to predict weather patterns. And so he puts in 12, there's 12 variables that he wants to function on this, you know, air pressure, wind speed, temperature, and things like that. And, and based on what he, the input he gives, he wants to see how the weather pattern changes. So he, he, he runs this one, uh, uh, you know, kind of in, input thing with the 12 variables, and he gets one result. But he wants to repeat the experiment, so he does it again, except this time, he just because it, he didn't think it would make a difference, he changes one variable slightly, very slightly. Instead of putting in 0.506127, he rounds it off to simply 0.506. Because what possible difference could 0.000127 of 1% make? You would think minuscule. Well, he leaves and comes back a little later and finds that a completely different weather pattern had emerged. The, the, the second run represents where he just rounded things off, which showed to him that the slightest variation at one point in time can, under certain circumstances, create massive differences later on. Ripple effects can crescendo, and this is what's called the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect basically says that it can be the case that, that a flap of a butterfly wing in Taiwan was the decisive variable that caused the hurricane to hit Galveston, Texas three months later, rather than New Orleans. All right? It, a flap of a butterfly wing. And see, since we can't ever monitor all the flaps of the butterfly wing or every other variable that could contribute to weather patterns, it means that weather will always be somewhat unpredictable. We can, in, in Broadway's, you know, short-term predict things, but, but there's just too many variables. It's just a mystery. And, and what this view is saying is all the world is like that. It, had anything been different in the past, for all we know, things might have been massively different in the present, but we can't know all the things that, in the past. Um, it, it applies everywhere. Uh, some of you have, I'm sure, seen this little uh, ditty. Uh, it goes back, actually, to the 13th century, I'm told. Uh, it's for the want of a nail. For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of the horse, the rider was lost. For the want of the rider, the message was lost. For the want of a message, the battle was lost. And for, for the want of the battle, the kingdom was lost, all for the want of a nail horseshoe. That describes life. Think about it like this. Uh, you know, Paul Revere, the midnight ride. You know that, that whole story. Uh, well, imagine Paul Revere. His job is to get the message of, that the British are coming by land or by sea and then ride down to Lexington and Concord and tell the patriots there that they're coming so the patriots can then be prepared and get the upper hand in this revolutionary war. Unfortunately, Paul Revere, let's suppose, has a brother named Luke and Luke's job is to take care of the horse of Paul Revere. He has to feed the horse, breast the horse, water the horse, whatever else you do with the horse, including checking its shoe. Now the brother checks the shoe. Luke checks the shoe, uh, and it's missing a nail. For whatever reasons, they don't have a nail there, but Joe McDonald, who had a farm, E-I-A-I-O, down the road, uh, he's, he's got nails, but he's a half a mile away, and Luke's tired. And the reason Luke is tired is because he had an argument with his wife all night long. And the reason they had an argument with his wife all night long is because he's been out there dealing with the British all this time, and she's starting to feel like he doesn't really love her because she's been insecure all of her life because her dad walked out on her when she was five. 
So Luke says, well, you know what? Missing one nail, it doesn't matter because you've got two other nails that hold the horseshoe in. And usually that'd be true except for the fact that these two nails also were already loose. But Luke didn't notice that because he was so tired. So the message comes to Paul Revere to go down to Lexington Concord and declare that the British are coming. He gets on his horse and starts going there. Four miles later, the horse loses its shoe, stumbles. Paul Revere flies off the horse, hits his head on a carriage that was parked in the wrong place because the guy who was driving it passed out because he was drunk the night before, and there's a thousand reasons why that was the case. <laughs> so now he's unconscious. Concord and Lexington don't get the, the message. They get surprised when the British show up. They get their butts kicked, and the revolution never happens. So we're thinking God saved the queen and talking with a funny accent, but paying much less for our health insurance. <laughs> and... We're not nearly as obsessed with having straight teeth. Okay, so, aren't you glad that we won the revolution? If someone says, well, then why did the Americans lose the revolution? You see, people would say, well, some would say it was just part of God's plan. Others would say, well, you know, the Americans must have been sinners or they lack faith. When in fact, it was because of want of a nail. And the want of a nail because of the want of a night's sleep. And the want of a night's sleep because you have an insecure wife for want of a good father. See, but who could know all of that? We can't know all of that, which is why we have to admit that we can have, what we call an explanation is a little oasis of knowledge in an infinity of ignorance. We don't know why one thing happens this way or that way. You pray for one child, the child's healed. You pray for the next child, the kid dies. Why? I'd have to know every flap of a butterfly wing and every decision ever made throughout history, angelic and human, uh, to answer that. So we've got to get really good at saying, I don't know. We experience the world as completely arbitrary. It's random. Fortune and misfortune come randomly. Let's admit that. To try to, divide, to discern a divine plan behind that is nonsense. And Jesus refused that very line of thinking in Luke 13. Read it. Verses 1 through 5. And the book of Joel refused that line of thinking. Um, we, just, we have to get good at saying, I don't know. I don't know. But we don't know. It's important we understand why we don't know. Why we can't answer these things. And it's not because God is so mysterious. Because God's revealed himself and he's a really good communicator. And we'll just listen to what he has to say. The only reason God's communication seems ambiguous to us is because we already think we know what he's going to say and we keep imposing it on what he does say. But what he does say is the opposite of what we think he's going to say. Because when God communicates, he's revealed himself to be as he is on the cross. So I close with these three quick little points in the light of all this. Know this, God is good. We sang about it earlier. God is good. Uh, the world can suck. The experiences can be terrible. Bad, life can be bad. Decisions can be bad. Things can happen. Tragedies can occur. Uh, you know, friends sometimes aren't good. Spouses sometimes aren't good. But God is always good. Life isn't always good. Justice system isn't always good. Police aren't always good. But God is always good. He's beautiful. He's exactly as he's revealed to be on the cross. We just got to trust that. Amen? The world's ambiguous because we don't know nothing. We're stupid. Let's admit that we're stupid. Everybody say, I am stupid. Okay, see, let's just admit that. There's no shame in that. We know very, 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 very little. Uh, it's, it's ambiguous, but God is not ambiguous. His character is not ambiguous. His overall plan is not ambiguous. He, the God is revealed in Jesus Christ on the cross. He's always on your side. He's always on the side of goodness, always on the side of health, always on the side of well-being, always on the side of being against suffering and against injustice. He's never planning devious things. There is no darkness in him. There's no, there's no uh, obscure streak in him. He's good. He's light. And in him there is, John says, no darkness whatsoever. Trust that God is good. And see... Know that everything in the world that doesn't look like Jesus Christ on the cross, everything that doesn't reflect a good character, that comes from wills other than God. And we maybe can't trace that back. How could we? It's too complex. But just trust that, that God's, behind everything that's good, find God. Behind everything that's not, find other wills, human or angelic. Number two, trust that God is super, super smart. 
If you trust he's super, super smart, you will not be anxious about the future. Um, whatever happens, he's got a plan in place. It, nothing catches him by surprise. Yeah, some things are really improbable. And, and there's times, in fact, quite a few places in Scripture where God says, basically, I didn't expect that. Uh, but he still has a plan for it. It's just that was improbable. Wow, I, who would have thought that was going to happen? But he's got a plan for everything. And so not everything happens for a purpose, but everything happens with a purpose. And so be working with God to discern that purpose as he's a genius of bringing good out of evil. I think one of the reasons why I think people tend to think that God must have everything happen for a purpose is because he's so good at bringing a purpose out of things. He's so good. A, a tragedy happens, but man, it results in this wonderful stuff. So people think, oh, that's why that tragedy happened, which means that God wanted that tragedy to happen. But if you trust that God's super smart, you don't need to think like that anymore. No, the tragedy is terrible. It's, it's, it, God didn't want that to happen. But now that it did happen, the genius comes along and says, okay, let's, let's build this out of it. It's always bringing good uh, uh, out of evil. Not everything happens for a purpose, but everything happens with a purpose. And number three, coming in at number three, prayer creates massive ripples. Yeah, all of our decisions create ripples. Amen. Oh, I'm, not, I'm just getting warmed up here. <laughs> no, see, all, all, of our, all of our decisions create ripples. Sometimes massive ones that go on throughout history. I've shared before. If it wasn't for that moron ancestor of mine in the 11th century, uh, I would have been born in Scotland in nobility. I would have been wealthy, and I would have been wearing a skirt. <laughs> I could have been somebody. But this moron ancestor of mine kidnapped the feudalist daughter, and we got our butts kicked and got kicked out of Scotland, and our name's been mud ever since. Okay, so... One decision phew, I, causes massive ripple effects. How things would have been different. Uh, all of our decisions are like that. But as I read scripture, there's an extraordinary importance put on prayer. There are more if-then statements associated with prayer in the Bible than any other human activity. It must be really, really important. So if our decisions are like dropping stones in a pond, prayer is like dropping a boulder. It has a massive ripple effect. It causes waves. Forget the ripples. It's a wave, all right? So prayer is a wave maker. No, it's not magic. It's not magic. It doesn't often collapse all of the other variables. It doesn't take away people's free will. Okay, so it's not magic. You're not rubbing a bottle for the genie to come out there and get your wish. You're laboring with God to, to further the kingdom. You're aligning your heart with God so that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the Bible indicates that that is always powerful and effective. James 5. It's always powerful and effective. Now, sometimes the circumstances are such... Given all the ripples going throughout history, the circumstances are such that your prayer is, you're able to see the answer to your prayer. Boom, it happens there. The kid's healed. Often, it's not the case that you can see the effect because of, well, you'd have to know the whole history of the universe to know why. Uh, but it's, it's not that God's up there going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you get to get healed, you gotta let go. It's rather, you know, God's always on the side of well-being, but he's got to honor the ripple effects of the free will that he's given us. Um, and, 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 and so we, we don't know why it happens that way, but, but, but there it is. But it's not because of a question about God. It's about a question about reality. But know this, even when you don't see the effect of what you're praying for, trust that it's powerful and effective. You've left, you've left the situation or the person more kingdomized than they otherwise would have been. You, you've brought the kingdom more into the world. And so we are to be called to be a people who by faith labor, be pushing the world in a kingdom direction, in a, in a God's will direction, in a healing direction, in a well-being direction, in a shalom direction. Uh, amidst all the ripples that are here, we get to have the significance of being massive wave makers. And we do it through the power of prayer. Amen? 
So folks, trust that God is always good. Folks, trust that God is super smart. And folks, trust in the power of prayer. Let's commit to being wave makers. Would you stand? I'd like to call our, call our wave makers here this morning, our prayer team, to come up here. Uh, and they'll be at the stairs here. And if you could use a good splash, I, I, should, I should quit now. <laughs> uh, come up here and let them just ripple on you, wave on you, all right? Uh, they, they love to uh, intercede and use the power of prayer to impact your life. If you're here this morning and you're not surrendered to Jesus, but there's something pulling at your heart that says you should be, listen to that voice and come up here and talk to these people. And they'd love to explain to you what it is to get started on the kingdom walk. Folks, as we leave this place, can we be a people who are committed to justice and a people who are committed to, to uh, always seeing God on the side of the good, uh, always trusting in that goodness? Can we be a people who do this knowing that God brings a purpose to everything and trust Him for that? And can we be a people who are co- committed to making good ripples with good decisions and good waves with prayer decisions? Amen? If you're committed to that, say hallelujah and get out of here and ripple on people. Hallelujah. God bless you guys. Go out and ripple on people.